Good evening, everybody, and, and welcome again. Um, I'm uh, Barbara Ridpath, and I'm the director of St. Paul's Institute. I'm actually not quite tall enough for this podium, even with the step. Um, <laughs> so they needed to hire a taller director than they did, but I hope you can see me in the back. Uh, what Anna's doing is a bit of an experiment for us, and some of you who have been here before know we're, we're in a process of innovating ourselves and trying to think differently about how we run these events. Uh, so each time we try and do something a little bit new, and this evening we have a, a couple new innovations, and some which are practices that we've learned in previous events, and I will try and walk through them. For those of you who don't know us well, uh, we often partner with other organizations because we find we can do more when we work together. So we're delighted to be working with the Finance Innovation Lab. St. Paul's Institute itself is a part of the Department of the Cathedral, which organizes events and efforts around the themes of equality, stewardship, and the common good. Since the financial crisis, we've held a number of events around the city and the common good, and are increasingly thinking about the purpose of business and finance. Seven years after the crisis, it's interesting to take stock and see to what extent real change has occurred and where the best prospects of future change might be, which is what tonight's event, Unfinished Business, Reform and Innovation in Finance, is about. We have a terrific panel. We expect a lively discussion. And I will explain now some of these innovations. You've already met Anna, who's facilitating the audience involvement. Also over in that little nook, we have Laura Boardman, a graphic artist who is appropriately named, using boards to write on, who will be creating a visual representation of the discussion as it occurs, so we have a visual record of the event. After the formal part of the proceedings are finished, you're going to be invited to view a series of displays from organizations including Share Action, Positive Money, and others who are trying to reconsider our relationship and engagement with finance. The space is designed to give you a chance to consider ways to engage further with the topic and find out more about what is going on. At the same time, we'll be hosting a reception in the space outside the chapel so you can browse and talk and have some refreshments as you do and continue the conversation from this evening. Before I introduce your chairman for this evening, may I encourage you to do two things. First of all, please see me or any of my colleagues about ideas for other events you'd like to see us covering. And second, can I encourage those of you who are able to contribute to a retiring collection to help support our costs? If you're eligible for gift aid, there's a contribution envelope on your seat. Because we're determined to make these events open to all, but the more we can get in contributions, the more often we can provide them. So your support permits the Institute to continue and increase its programming. It's now my pleasure to introduce Chris Hewitt, Fellow of the Finance Innovation Lab is your chairman for the evening. Chris worked in environmental policy for 20 years in think tanks, NGOs, and government agencies. At the Finance Innovation Lab, his current research is focused on policy change to transform the finance system into one that can deliver sustainability. Chris, over to you. Thank, Thank you, everybody. Shall I try the, the height test? I think just about get away with it. Okay. Um, Finance Lab, one of our core um, values is collaboration. We seek to collaborate with civil society groups, with uh, entrepreneurs, with um, mainstream finance groups to develop a finance system which is democratic, responsible, and fair. 
So we're delighted to be able to um, collaborate with St Paul's Institute. Uh, our values are real, a really good mix, uh, a really good match, I think, in terms of uh, what we're trying to achieve in the long term. I just want to, before um, we hear some of your views from the audience, I just want to set a little, little context about why we're holding this event and why we're holding it now. So it's seven years, as Barbara said, after the financial crash. Um, and this building, of course, was itself a focus for public discontent around how the financial system was or wasn't uh, delivering what, it's, what it was supposed to be doing for the wider economy and for, for the society. It's three years since the LIBOR scandal. Um, most high street banks are still paying out for payment protection insurance um, mis-selling. Fines for the foreign exchange market rigging are still being handed down in billions. Uh, the joint CEOs of the Deutsche Bank have just resigned. HSBC is cutting jobs today uh, alongside Barclays. They're both involved in tax avoidance scandals. RBS, who we have on the platform, is still owned 80% by the taxpayer, and uh, the value of those shares are still a long way short of the, the value which the taxpayer um, bought them at. And this, this bank is also being pursued by a lot of angry SMEs for how they've been treated in certain areas of, of, of the uh, operations. Throw in a competition and markets authority full-scale investigation into the personal banking and SME markets. Um, the fact that the most fundamental banking restructuring, um, the ring fencing proposals, aren't due to come into force until 2019. Um, and you wonder why all of these issues really didn't feature more in the general election campaign we've just seen. That's really one of the reasons why we're hosting the event now. It's, it's a, a small reminder that the reform and innovation in the banking sector is still unfinished business. Uh, luckily, we're not the only people who are having discussions in this part of the city um, around banking uh, this week. Uh, tomorrow night, the Chancellor will be speaking just down the road in the Mansion House to the leaders of the financial institutions. But his message seems to be, from what's being trailed in the press, very much we want to return to business as usual, whether it's selling the state-owned shares back to the private sector as soon as possible, possibly at a loss, or whether it's reviewing the banking levy, which has only just been put in place, and even some sort of a, yeah, spinning around, perhaps it's, it's time to stop bashing the bankers. Now, this is a conversation which is happening down the road in a slightly grander venue with slightly uh, grander people, if you like, but it's, it's really being held in the elite. It's only being held between the policymakers and the, the senior executives of the financial institutions. In contrast to tonight's event, which does two things differently. Firstly, I think not everyone in this room thinks it is all uh, okay to go back to business as usual. And we have deliberately, on this panel and in this audience, um, fostered a, a more diverse audience so we hear the perspectives from a, across the piece on the financial system. So amongst you and amongst the panel, there are bankers who don't want to be bashed. There are campaigners who don't want to be patronised or ignored. There are consumers who don't want to be ripped off. There are regulators who are not faceless bureaucrats. And there are innovators who don't want barriers to entry. You all deserve to be heard in this debate. And that's hopefully what we'll be able to do this evening. That's what we'll endeavour to do this evening. So I'll introduce the speakers um, in a moment. But now I think if I've spoken for long enough to give Anna and Charlotte a chance to trust your comments, perhaps I'll now hand back to Anna to pick out some of the, uh, the most interesting things from the audience. Okay, um, so what we've just been doing was looking at the post-it notes that you've written on and we've been trying to just see the, the themes that were coming out from it and there were so many uh, ideas that came from it. We haven't got through all of them, but we will do. But we have already seen that there's a number of themes coming out in terms of what people want to change in the financial system. So I'll just take you through them. You won't all be able to see me. 
we have definitely a theme around motives and values and the whole purpose of the system. And that links into actually, does the system serve its, its communities or does it serve the people within the system? I think linked to that is also a question around pay and the internal culture of banking. Um, we also have a question around whether the financial system is fair and whether it's leading to more equality or more inequality and whether it's actually focused on serving its, its customers rather than serving itself. We also have questions around what's done with the, the assets within the financial system. Is the financial system actually directed towards the real economy and towards innovation, including green innovation? Is it directed towards socially useful activities? So we've really got a whole flow going from the basic purpose of the system to how that system works, how the machine works, and then also its effects on the real economy and on the environment. I'm just going to pick off a couple of post-it notes I hope people don't mind. I'm just going to read out um, a couple of the issues that people have raised. So, first up, we had Tara, and I hope you uh, remember what you said, Tara, who wants to see a shift in the values of the people who work within the system to actively reflect on their role in building a more equal society. We had Sylvia, who said the financial system should serve society not increase inequality, but decrease it. We had Peter Cruikshank, who wanted the system to realign capital flows to the real rather than the financial economy, particularly the green economy. Rachel said she would like a world in which our economy reflects the value of contribution to our community and our impact on that scale. And I think perhaps most interestingly, Maria said, I am here, that's already a change because I would like to, to learn. So, speakers, you've heard some of the themes that are coming from um, our audience. I hope you can, to, to whatever extent possible, reflect some of those, whether you agree with them or not, how we might achieve some of those things. And I will be back later on with some questions for you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Anna. So, what I'll do now is, is introduce each of the speakers in turn. They'll each have 10 minutes um, from this side. Um, and on this side, we have two who will give um, sort of shorter kind of responses to what they've heard. And then we'll open it back up to the audience to hear more of your views, more of your questions in a question and answer format. So we'll start off with uh, George Graham, who is head of strategy for RBS. Um, he's worked for RBS for uh, 10 and a bit years. And before that, he was an FT journalist for 20 years. So. George. I should warn as well, 10 minutes is the limit, so I will be giving okay. you a one-minute warning. Yeah. Um, well, I probably have to add in a few from uh, the points that have been raised there, so uh, I don't know if that'll stretch to it. <laughs> um, Chris said earlier that you had RBS on the platform tonight. I'm afraid you don't. You've got me. Um, so these are my personal views. They're not RBS's views. Um, Chris also spoke about um, fairness in the system. Uh, that is one aspect, but I'd also like to talk about a couple of other quite important elements, uh, areas in which there has been a lot of change and there is still a lot of change going on, uh, and that's um, safety and simplicity. Um, the financial system today is vastly different from its pre-crisis self. Those are not my words, uh, they're Mark Carney's. Um, he argued that the system is today simpler, safer, and fairer in a recent speech. I'm not going to claim that the job is done, far from it, but the changes that have taken place already 
uh, provide an important context for understanding where the industry is today and how we might expect it to evolve. So there have been three main vectors that echo those um, adjectives of safer, simpler, and, Sarah, uh, and, and fairer. The, the first is resilience. Uh, that involves significant strengthening of capital and liquidity uh, to be able to withstand bigger shocks without failing. Resolvability, uh, which has become the regulator's recipe of choice for ending the problem of too big to fail. Uh, so basically, the ability to fail gracefully uh, and be wound up without bringing down the rest of the financial system around you. Uh, and finally, conduct and culture, and that um, goes very much into the fairness uh, agenda. So on resilience, um, progress here is quite hard to question, although there are many who think that there's a lot further still to go. Uh, capital ratios, when you adjust for definitional changes, are now about seven times higher than they were pre-crisis. When the Vickers Commission was setting out its recommendations for reform, it proposed lifting the capital ratio requirement for ring fence banks to 10%. Uh, the market already thinks that's not nearly enough and has moved beyond that to uh, expect 12 to 13%. Similar progress has been made on liquidity. These are positive changes and they were much needed uh, and they should mean that future bank failures are less likely than before. But they do have real economy consequences and I'll come back to that a bit later on. Resolvability essentially means that if a bank fails, regulators will be able to wind it up, confident that doing so will not bring down the rest of the economy. Uh, getting to a solution on this has meant simplifying business structures, and we're still in uh, the process of doing that. A lot of work on data so that central banks can step in and know what they're dealing with. Uh, and dry runs, uh, sometimes known as recovery plans. In the United Kingdom, uniquely, in the world, it has also meant significant structural reform. Uh, following through on other Vickers Commission recommendations, banks with more than 25 billion of customer deposits will be required by 2019, the date that uh, Chris mentioned, to have ring-fenced those deposits in a different legal entity from the one that houses their markets activities, their dealings with financial institutions, and any operations they have outside the European economic area. Uh, this, is, this is law, it's going to happen, and contrary to what you sometimes hear from former members of the Commission, uh, no bank is seriously trying to reverse it. Uh, but regulations have unintended consequences sometimes, and this one will be no exception. First of all, it was not Vickers' intention, but ring fencing has fed the idea that retail banking is nice and safe, while investment banking is dangerous. So there is a risk, and we see this in uh, conversations with our customers quite frequently, that um, every customer in the UK will think in the future that ring fence banks have a label placed on them saying uh, the government promises to rescue this one. Uh, and that could actually entrench the problem of too big to fail or too important to fail, if you like, which it was supposed to address. Second, it could also make the UK financial system more dangerous by creating a group of homogeneous and undiversified banks with identical business models by Act of Parliament. Uh, the separate retail banking arms will be focused even more than before on what has historically been the most cyclical and dangerous element of banking, which is mortgage and property lending. Conduct and culture. Uh, well, it won't surprise you that um, this is one that we're finding much harder to achieve concrete progress on. And I don't think banks are the only organisations that find culture difficult to shift. 
a key slogan of the old RBS was make it happen. It wasn't in itself a bad slogan, and a lot of the things that were made to happen were made to do so for customers. Uh, but it had bad associations, and it did also make some not-so-good things happen. And it's been banished since 2008. But it's still deeply ingrained without ever being mentioned in the, in the organization. You get together any group of RBS people and ask them to address a problem, and they immediately start thinking about detailed planning. Uh, and quite a lot of other banks have fairly similar reactions on this. That's what we did with capital and liquidity. That is what we are doing with ring fencing. Uh, and that's what, in our bones, a lot of us still are. Hill climbers, show us a hill and we'll get cracking on the route map uh, to, to get us to the top of it. But we're not good hill finders. If cultural change is a hilltop, it's pretty shrouded in mist. It doesn't lend itself well to 90-day plans and red, amber, and green progress charts. Banks are trying, but it's not easy, and success is more likely to be visible by the absence of negatives than by any observable and tangible achievement of positives. So let me conclude with some comments on the economics of banking. Uh, I'm not going to dwell here on the costs of regulation, though it does cost real money to implement ring fencing. It costs real money to run a much larger liquidity buffer of low-yielding government bonds and central bank deposits, to fund much more of your balance sheet with equity. Uh, and for the financial economists among you, that holds true even if the returns expected by equity investors fall in line with the greater perceived safety that comes with that equity buffer as Modigliani Muller proposes they should, and as experience teaches us they don't. The bigger factor here is the interest rate environment. The old cliche about bank managers was 333, um, take deposits at 3% below base rate, uh, lend it out at 3% above base rate, and retire to the golf course at 3 o'clock. Well, that doesn't work when the base rate is at 0.5%, as it has been since March 2009. So I can hear your hearts breaking here in sympathy with the bank manager. He might have to push his tea time back to 5 o'clock. Uh, but it does have real economic consequences. You could, I suppose, make your customers pay for you to hold their deposits. Some Swiss banks have done that. But the logical response there for the customers is just to hold it in cash under the mattress. That has other consequences for the economy at large, and it has downsides. Alternatively, you could push up lending rates so that what you're not making on the deposit side of your balance sheet, you're making up for on the lending side. But you'd expect that to depress demand for credit. Or you could absorb the cost of negative spreads, but then the squeeze on profitability means that you have less uh, coming in to rebuild your capital ratios and also squeezes the supply of credit. Last year, return on equity for uh, the larger UK banks averaged 2.4%. Uh, that is not a sustainable level of profitability. It doesn't build capital. It doesn't support lending growth. It doesn't fund IT investment. And it leaves open huge opportunities for competitors without the same burden of legacy costs to make inroads. Some of them have taken good advantage of this, and we'll hear from some tonight. Every year since the financial crisis, banks have built their budgets and their financial forecasts around charts that usually showed interest rates starting to rise about 18 months out. Um, we used to call it return to normal. And every year since then, 
we've had to push the expected rise out another year with implications for the path of profitability. At some point, hoping for that upturn has to give way to much more radical changes to the business model, to the range of services offered and to the cost base. And uh, you touched on the cuts at uh, HSBC. We haven't finished on that story. And not everyone is going to like the direction that some of those changes take. Thank you. Oh, excellent. One minute short. <laughs> I was just ready with my nine-minute warning, and you, you've finished on time. So that's, let's let that be an example for the other speakers. Uh, conciseness is, is important. Uh, we have a lot of people who will want to ask you questions later, but let's, I want to move on straight on to Tony Greenham, who is... Um, head of the finance and business team at New Economics Foundation. Um, in his past, he was an investment banker, um, amongst other things. So he's seen both sides of the fence. Tony. Actually, I'm going to try standing in front. Is that, is that better? Can you see me? Partly because then I can see a watch, because um, there's no clock. So I'll try my 10 minutes. Uh, right. Well, uh, what I'm going to say is obviously not prepared as a response to... Uh, what George has said. It's perhaps just offering a different perspective on the issues you've all raised. But I thought I'd also start with a quote from uh, a senior uh, figure, um, and it's this one. In putting in order the nation's finances, we must remember that this was a crisis that started in the banking sector. Anybody know who said that? It was George Osborne in his first speech as Chancellor. Now, I, I wanted to raise that because he also went on to talk about rebalancing the economy away from dependence on financial services. Um, he also said that they would bring forward detailed proposals in the last government to foster diversity in the banking system. Now, has that happened? Uh, I think we should ask ourselves. And although it would be churlish to say there's been no progress, George has sort of set out things that have happened, I would say that we're so far away, actually, from a banking system that meets the test that you've just set out for it around social purpose, public good, fairness, that almost uh, far from being unfinished, I'd say we've barely started. And one of the reasons for that is that um, we didn't even start the whole question of how to reform the system after the crisis with asking ourselves what the purpose of the banking system is. Vickers did not start by asking, what is the banking system for? If it had, I suggest it might well, or indeed it should, I would say, have adopted Neff's uh, definition, which is that it, it is to um, foster, to create social and financial value, social and financial value, in uh, ways that are ecologically sustainable. We can't just... Uh, put aside these outcomes as something which may or may not happen. If the banking system isn't delivering social justice and ecological sustainability, there is something wrong with the banking system and we need to change it. We haven't even begun really to address those issues. But even worse, the, 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 very, the creation of financial value, I would say that we're not in a hugely better position now than seven years ago. And I actually don't agree that the system now is significantly more resilient than it was in 2007 in the UK. It is true that there is a lot more capital and liquidity, and that certainly helps individual banks to, to uh, survive a financial shock. But we did some research we published last week called the Financial System Resilience Index. And this was taking a whole system view 
of what a robust financial system that serves a useful, socially useful purpose, right? what the requirements are. And there were seven factors. I won't go through all of them, but I want to major on one of them, which is diversity. It's already been mentioned. Um, it is crucial that we have a financial system that is diverse. Now, on this measure of financial system resilience, we measured it for the, the leading seven industrial countries. And out of seven, who would like to guess where the UK came in that league table? Last, yes. It didn't just come last, it came last by a very long way. Uh, the, other, the other sort of six economies are in, it, it, they've showered and dressed, they're in the bar, we're still not reaching the finishing line. This is how far behind we are. And that is largely because we have a financial system that is hugely oversized in relation to our economy, that creates huge risks for us as an economy, but also this lack of diversity. Now, indeed, crowdfunding is one of the promising ways of introducing more diversity, but we think something much more dramatic is required. And so a second proposal that we published recently was actually that RBS, the bank that we own, you know, accidentally as a result of the financial crisis, rather than just being reprivatized in its current form, should, we should make use of this opportunity to create a, a once-in-a-lifetime shift in the structure of the British banking industry keep it in public ownership, in fact, put it into public trust, like John Lewis. We don't want politicians running banks, that's quite clear. But we do want a network of 130 independently governed local stakeholder banks as part of an overall RBS network. That's exactly the sort of banks that they have in Germany. It is similar to the banking arrangements in Canada and uh, the US, where you see these networks of stakeholder banks. These are banks which have a social purpose. They, of course, they, they, expect, they make a loan, they expect to get the money back. These are not charities, they're commercial. But profit does not come first. The social purpose is equal to the financial purpose. And unfortunately, unless we have some of these kinds of banks, I fear that overall as a system, not only are we going to achieve the kind of resilience that we need, but we're not going to meet that vital test of equality, some of you have mentioned, of making sure that all areas of our economy, all the people in our economy, all the, the different communities and groups are properly served with access to fair and affordable financial services. Because I think we've uh, misconceived also as part of the whole conversation about banks. Uh, we still haven't got round the idea, I, I fear, senior bankers still think they're running retail businesses where you sell things to people. Right? I do not think that banking is a retail business where you sell things to people. I think that banking is a trust business, similar to medical, you know, to doctors, lawyers, accountants, dentists. You know, these are people who are experts in something that you cannot possibly hope to know as much about as them. You are dependent on them. You have to trust them to service your needs. That means that banking is about relationships and trust. It cannot be about transactions and profit. And I think there has been some welcome change in the big banks to try and address this culture change, but that's not enough. We also need different kinds of banks and different kinds of financial institutions that do put relationships first and that do put social purpose equal to uh, financial profit. And I just want to end. How many minutes have I got? Are you still got? Got loads, apparently. Uh, three. Oh, three, okay, all right. <laughs> well, I've mentioned some solutions that we would suggest, but um, I just want to sort of, I guess, uh, uh, just, just put in a personal sort of thought, really. Um, 
1996, I joined uh, what was then Barclays Dezoot Wed uh, as a corporate stockbroker. The first major transaction I worked on, and which by the way, I joined, I thought this is a tremendously social useful thing to do. You know, I was raising money for companies on the stock market to invest in the British economy, create jobs. You know, fantastic, what's not to like? Um, well, the first major transaction was the demutualization of the Woolwich. Any former Woolwich uh, members in, in, in the audience, I wonder? Oh, <laughs> fantastic. And, and during the course of, of that transaction, um, which of course you will remember, there was a wave of demutualizations of building societies, all privatized onto the stock market. I had to, part of my job was to help write the prospectus, the selling document for this. And I did become very uneasy at this institution that was created from nothing out of the endeavor and the, the, the joint efforts and savings of people with not generally much money, as a mutual, could just in one single day on the stock market be um, 150 years of, of mutual endeavor be privatized into just another shareholder bank, which of course got taken over by Barclays. And none of those four big ones that were, that were mutualized in 1997 now exist. One of them was Northern Rock. So that was a very bad move for Northern Rock. But we can't go back in time. We can't recreate those mutuals. But I still think we want to recreate the spirit of those mutuals. And my final thought to lead into our next speaker is that when the earliest proponents of building societies got together to pool their resources and take turns to see who could build a house with their joint proceeds, I think that's sort of 18th, 19th century crowdfunding using the 18th century technology of the pub. Uh, and so maybe now if we have a sort of 21st century version of crowdfunding, maybe that could be part of the solution. So I don't know. Thank you very much. Again, perfectly on the nine minutes, so very good. Um, so yes, and you've, you've pretty much introduced the next speaker. So Julia Groves, is, um, she runs Trillion Fund, which is a, a crowdfunding, a crowd investing uh, platform for renewable energy. Um, she's run lots of different uh, enterprises in her career and is now the chair of the UK Crowdfunding Association. So really, Julia is here to tell us about the, the new innovations uh, on the, in the market, which may or may not challenge banks. Julia. I am not a banker. I have never been a banker. It's not looking like it's on the cards. I did the Oxford Union debate with Anthony Jenkins two weeks ago, and I think that's definitely the last time he's going to consider calling me. Although, of course, Barclays are my bank, because it's not possible to be a crowdfunder without having a bank behind you. Um, so I'm very new to this wonderful industry that some of you are involved in. Um, and it's totally different to anything I've experienced before. 20 years ago, I was co-founding BritishAirways.com, um, sitting in a hangar, uh, which is about to be demolished as of next week, uh, Terminal 3. And it was my first experience of how technology can rebalance the power between individuals and institutions. Uh, the good news was that through that direct technology, we flipped our distribution. We moved from the majority of tickets being bought through travel agents to being bought direct, and that meant more profit for the airline and a better price of ticket for the individual flying. So far, so good. Um, it did also 
blow out differential pricing overnight. Differential pricing is when you charge a different amount of money for your ticket according to where you buy it. We called it the mug factor, affectionately, internally, and it wiped out £300 million for the business in the course of a year. So technology can provide transparency and very valuable tools to help people DIY, and, and Web 1.0 was brilliant for that. But the power of Web 2.0 and the crowd is that it allows people to connect with each other and to leverage their group buying power to further influence and renegotiate the pricing for what they're doing. In fact, this word consumer, I would argue, will soon become redundant for forward-thinking companies. It implies that I am the company and I have produced the product and I shall advertise it and you shall buy it and consume it. And that's already very outdated in a world where companies like Unilever are crowdsourcing solutions. Things move too fast to go through traditional large-scale business process of innovation. And my argument would be that the banks will really struggle to innovate in this environment. And yes, regulation is part of that, but more important is technology. Working on top of those legacy systems is like trying to change the wheel in a car going at 60 miles an hour. And those who are nimbler and, dare I use the word, agile, has anyone said it yet? But we have a huge advantage because the technology backs the disruptors and not the incumbents. So I tried to come up with a very simplistic diagram, which I shall now mime, um, of the seven key factors which are creating, for me, almost perfect conditions for innovation in, in finance today. The first primary driver is, of course, the gap in the market. And, and whilst Anthony maintained in our debate at Oxford Union that there is no SME funding gap, I beg to differ. Um, and really, that access to finance for small businesses is the engine room of recovery um, for the UK. And if we can't get the money into the real economy, we can't get it into those businesses to grow, we've got big problems. And it's not that banks necessarily say no, it's just that they don't quite say yes. And whilst you might think it's all about the cost of finance, the recent study by Nesta, Cambridge and Berkeley highlighted ease and speed of getting access to finance even above the cost of money for businesses trying to grow and diversify. And I use that diversification word um, repeatedly to iterate Tony's point, the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards said that unless we introduce real diversity into the financial system, by which, to quote Mr. Davis, I don't mean more flavors of vanilla. That diversity is not just about effective competition, it's also about financial stability going forward. And if we're going to get out of this number of banks that are too big to fail and too big to jail, we have to have more real alternatives out there. And that evidence of competition is really everywhere. Um, we have extraordinary policy support for innovation in this sector. Unlike America, we have, our, we have the tech on the West Coast and the money on the East Coast. We have everything in the same place at the same time. And whatever my views might be on the Conservatives' policy in renewable energy, George Osborne has been instrumental in creating the market conditions for innovation here like nowhere else in the world. How often can we say that London and the UK is the ideal environment for innovation and why we think the Facebook of finance is going to be a Brit. And regulation is key. I see some difference between the FSA and the FCA. I see some evidence of effective competition being in their remit. I feel we have appropriate and proportionate regulation for crowdfunding here and I think that regulation is essential 
to the growth of a scale mainstream industry and to reach the potential at it will either be the catalyst for democratic finance in the UK or will cut us off at our knees if we get it wrong. We've done a very good job so far and the wind is behind us. We've got to get the balance right between consumer protection and consumer opportunity. And one of the key differences here is in that environment where we need to get access to finance, the policy support is in place, the regulation is the most open so anyone can put up to 10% of their money directly into a UK business with new tax incentives in the form of the ISA opening up to peer-to-peer -peer lending, with pension freedoms, which means that Citigroup said there's 4.8 billion this year that would have gone into an annuity that's looking for a home. There is already movement. There are only three basic drivers for change. Dissatisfaction with the status quo, real alternatives, which are significantly better, and then you have to minimize the pain of helping people move from one to the other. Now, there was a report by Data Monitor this time last year that said that 2.6 million bank accounts had been opened outside the big six in the UK. Now, that is not a trivial amount of bank accounts to be opened. It's incremental, they're not getting closed down, but there's already evidence of movement, and I think that we already have dissatisfaction in spades. There's a massive issue with trust, there's a demand for transparency, and when the new providers can help people see where their money is and how it's being used, that will become the norm and that will become the expectation. The number of people in the UK with savings and investments who no longer have access to financial advice is 5.5 million. The amount of money sitting in bank accounts and cash ICES earning less than the rate of inflation is now in excess of 1.3 trillion. We have huge latent demand for a fairer share of the return, people to see where their money is going. And I would argue that when you do something new for the first time, you invest in what you know. You invest locally, you invest in brands that you trust, and you invest in real things. And the difference between me deciding for myself what to do with my money and getting an advisor or a fund manager to do it for me is I have little incentive to switch and churn and move it around. People are social. People have social values. When they decide for themselves where to put their money, I think a little bit of their purpose will travel with it. And this direct investment, this transparency, safely within the remit of regulation, with a tax-free incentive to do it, with a signal from the government that you can put your ISA directly into social enterprise in the UK, will be the revolution which will push us over the edge. And because we have the technological advantage, I don't think there'll be any coming back. Thank you. Oh, I've never had such a disciplined panel. That was eight minutes. Extraordinary. So now we have, um, before we go back to you and all of your thoughts, two different perspectives again from, from this. So we've, so we've had a mainstream bank. We've had a challenge from uh, an advocate uh, in terms of what policy change needs, needs to happen. We've had the challenge from the innovative innovation community. Um, Patricia Jackson is, um, she works um, now for EY. In, in a previous life, she was uh, a regulator at the Bank of England, um, regulating 
big banks of global risk sort of issues. Um, she's also, I think, are you on the board of a new challenger bank? I have indeed. Atom Bank. So lots of different hats there. So perhaps if you want to give us perspective either from here or from the, from the platform. Can everyone see me if I stay Maybe stand. Maybe stand. Oh, stand. <laughs> so five minutes, or up to five minutes. Okay, so... So to respond to some of the points made, in my view, banks are socially useful. They provide a credit uh, sifting mechanism to enable credit to get into the economy, and they enable uh, banks, uh, individuals, and companies to, um, to have real liquidity. You can put your deposits short term, but they transfer them into much longer term loans. But they could be much more socially useful. And I think that's the point. It's not that they don't add to society. They could add more. I think diversity in the banking system is going to be extremely important, and not just through banks, but through alternatives. The bank that I'm on the um, board for, Atom, will be a purely digital bank with an, um, an app. It won't have branches. It won't have the cost structure. Peer-to-peer, I think is important. Uh, the issue is how some of the peer-to-peer -peer lenders will survive in the next downturn. And then you have uh, crowdfunding and so on. Um, my reaction, though, to the thought of public sector-owned banks is extremely negative. Um, my experience globally with public sector-owned banks has been extremely poor. Um, for some reason, they're not well managed. They become extremely political in the way that they do their lending. If we look at the banking system, though, and the banking system as it stands will, will continue, even with greater diversity, there has to be a new paradigm. Customers have got to be at the center, really, of the activities of the banks. And we've got to have business models that are not reliant on selling more and more product to retail investors. At the height of the PPI sales, which have now cost the industry tens of billions in sorting it out, um, about 15% of the group profits of some of the banks were coming just from PPI alone. And targets on the sale of retail products drove uh, quite poor behavior in terms of uh, the types of incentives given to uh, retail-facing staff. I think that there needs to be much more thought about the combination of things that create incentives within banking. I think everyone has jumped onto bonuses and pay, but there's a lot of evidence from other industries that actually the way your colleagues react to what you do is extremely important. If you get local applause and status, that's actually more important than a possible effect on your bonus because you've breached some controls. I think there has to be much more thought given into given to loyalty in the staff base. There's some very interesting research done by the LSE which showed that actually traders are not loyal because of the hire and fire culture in the firms. And that's driven by targets. If you miss your targets, you get fired. Well, you create a dog-eat-dog -dog culture, you shouldn't be surprised if the dog starts biting the customers. Um, 
the culture has got to be dynamic. The banks have got to react when there are issues and they've got to react early and they've got to get more transparency. So I think there has to be a, be a fundamental change, but I would not say at all that banks are not uh, socially useful. But values and changing values just is not enough. Okay. Thank you. And fi final comment from James Vaccaro, who is head of well, stand up, head, is head of strategy for Triodos Bank. So throughout the the whole credit crunch, there was a there was a set of banks uh, which were represented globally by the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, which were more transparent, were more sustainable, if you like, were less involved in some of the riskier activities that, uh, that some of the, the big global banks were. And they quietly didn't have a credit crunch, quietly carried on their own business and, and, and grew their customer base steadily. And I think Trios is probably one of that family. I should also say James is also on the board of the Finance Innovation Lab as well. So that's to clear an interest. Thanks, Chris. Um, I was consistently overrun, so I'll, I'll maybe really balance it. Um, um, it's... Um, Somebody said at one of these types of talks, it's, sort of, it's easy to be cynical, so that's what I'll do. Um, but actually, it's much more difficult to be empathic and, and inclusive. And I think that's the more interesting space for us to get into. Um, because I think this is, this is a shared problem. I was, I was um, interested in, in, in George's, uh, how, how we're going to approach it. Because I think the whole, the whole sort of... Uh, attitude towards banks is still pretty much where it's been since around 2008, which is a culture of anger and a sort of a feeling of anger. And what that results in is a very understandable um, uh, sort of direction of going into, uh, into anxiety. I think there's a lot of very good things which have happened within UK banks in terms of what was set out in terms of safer, simpler and fairer. But it's all around this pivoting on purpose and what is core purpose. Um, I was at a discussion once about what is sustainable banking and the context of sustainability within banking is often just, well, sustainability means they don't fall down and, and make everything else in the world crash and sort of toxify everything. Um, and surely that's not a definition of sustainability in the sort of more positive uh, expression, which we want. Um, but for as long as there is a culture of anger, fear, and anxiety, it's just really difficult to get into the more imaginative space of how you could build a more transformative change. And I think that the mainstream banks need to be part of that. Um, and they need to be part of it alongside new models because a core point of systemic resilience is res is. is Diversity is that there being more different types of things, be it local, be it crowdfunding, be it specialist, um, being able to respond to the different needs of society and a, and a more diverse economy. And an economy which is changing quickly in terms of the types of business models which are emerging. We need to be able to respond quicker to that to be able to, to keep up pace with what, what our needs are. If you look, however, at what all of the instruments we've used in regulation, it's always about being able to, again, from a political point of view, show that you've done the right thing. So you implement things at the level of policy and conduct, which are the written rules. It's electric fences, it's don't pay these bonuses, it's doing things which look good on paper. Culture 
is an expression of the unwritten rules. It is an expression of actually how do we experience being within ourselves, within our organization, within our society. And I think that the biggest leverage point in a financial systems change is being able to turn financial institutions inside out, being able to have more of this conversation which defines the space in between. This is in a way one of the, the rationale for, for having the Finance Innovation Lab. What I mean by that is that a lot of financial institutions um, still can be quite insular and it's actually only by getting out, getting into the sort of the, uh, the real uh, life of the real economy, real people, that you can actually change experiences and that that actually changes what you value and that actually changes what systemically you start to create together. There's a lot of technical points made about um, whether we've actually stabilised and whether the capital changes. I've got views on that, but in a way, um, uh, it, it kind of starts to go down a different line which kind of deviates from purpose. I think that there's a lot of things which have happened which have been quite good to strengthen capital, but systemically, I think the system is still fundamentally fragile, partly because of the capital, but partly because of the business model. I think RBS is, is actually an example of a business model which is, over the next years, dramatically simplifying. A lot of the large, globally, systemically important banks are not really um, simplifying to the degree necessary for that to really mean that the capital requirements um, are, are sufficient for those systemic kind of shocks. In terms of, the, in terms of other business models though, I think that this is something which we need to be experimenting more with. In hearing Tony, there's a lot where I think, yes, actually, in terms of local banks, that could be a really interesting force in terms, of, in terms of diversification, but we don't need to wait for a split up of a bank for that to happen. What are, what are the real barriers and enablers of making local banks actually happen? And that means local communities have to also adapt. Banks were at the centre, at the heart of communities, which is why and when they work. But I mean, if you look now at other, other institutions within local economies, they're not necessarily all at the same heart of that locality that they perhaps should be. Universities, kind of uh, quite predisposed to looking at their inter international reputation, local authority procurement rules often screen out local businesses in favour of multinational corporations with contracts. So there's actually, there is a systemic change that is required. It isn't only something which can be carried by banks alone. I might pause you and unless you I was have going one to more point. I've got one more point. One more point. I've Go got on. one more point. One more point. And I think that whilst, uh, I think that whilst technology Whilst technology is, is important as a sort of a, a, sort of a touch paper for innovation, ultimately banks, money, is social technology. In order to have relationships, it's about people connecting with each other in a real space, in real, in real experiences. And I think that one of the pitfalls could be is seeing crowdfunding and all of the alternative finance movement as being the solution, as, a, as in one interesting bit of accelerating a whole number of solutions, because we can't ultimately replace relationships with algorithms. We have, to, we have to be able to experience each other and find new ways and patterns of organizing our economy. Thank you. Thanks.
Okay, um, we've had a lot of insights there, a, a lot of new, new things to think through. And before we move on to um, having the question and answer session, I'd like to give us just a short amount of time to process what we've heard. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and talk to them about what you've heard. It doesn't have to be someone you know. You might make a new friend. Um, this is also a really good time if you want to ask a question to test out that question and maybe refine what you're going to ask. And the reason I say that is that at these sorts of events, we quite often get a certain sort of person who asks questions. That there tends to be a pattern that it's normally the more confident people, uh, sometimes from a certain demographic, uh, usually with a professional background. And what that means is that actually voices are missing in this debate. So if you're not the sort of person who normally asks a question, but you, you have a question, there's something that, that you want to pursue, but you think it's a stupid question or you're not really sure how to phrase it, this is also a really good chance to try that out with your new friend. So I'm just going to give us a couple of minutes. If you just turn to the person next to you and your, your reflections on what you've heard and anything you might want to ask or propose to the panel. We'll move on to the, uh, to the questions and answers. I'm going to take your questions in groups of three. So if you just raise your hand if you've got a question that you want to ask. Um, if you can try and keep the questions relatively short. We've got about half an hour. Um, if you've got a comment, that's fine as well. But no very lengthy speeches, please. Um, so yeah, if you could just raise your hand if you have a question. And Rovin Mikes, if you can just... We've got one at the back, one at the front, and one at the front here. Sorry, this is, this is host privilege, I apologize. But I find it very interesting that none of you mentioned credit unions. And given that the Church of England is championing the credit union movement and doing an enormous job of building these institutions throughout the country, I'd sort of like your views on them. Okay, so a question on credit unions. Jen, do you want to pass the mic? Oh, yeah, as an unrepresentative demographic. Um, my question is to each panelist, what's your definition of money? Okay, and the third question was towards the front here. Okay. Just here, Jen. Um, two questions that actually to the ladies um, in, the, in the panel mostly. The um, first one, agile development, I always hear that they say, well, we do everything better because we don't have legacy systems and uh, it's going to be so great. Now, we've seen the track record on Apple on the iCloud. We know that they don't manage to get Wi-Fi working for six months on the iOS. Um, we see Gmail losing emails. Do you really think you can run a payment system that needs to be up like 99.99% um, adequately? And there, I would like to see sort of the old view and the new, new view. And a similar question is about the most important tech businesses, or most, not the most important, but the most successful ones, Uber, um, Airbnb, Amazon. They have a big innovation angle, but they have also a big, I am ignoring every regulation there is angle uh, to make money. Um, <laughs> is this what we really want for the financial system? Or are these guys possibly even worse once they get in there? I think you snuck in two questions there, but we'll let you up. Okay, so we've got a question around credit unions. Why has no one mentioned credit unions? We have, what is your definition of money? And we have a question to you around payment systems and flouting regulation with new technology. 
I'm going to nominate Tony on credit unions. I'm guessing you might yes, have I'm sorry reasons. I didn't mention credit unions. I meant to. I mean, I mentioned cooperatives, and credit unions are a form of cooperative. In many countries, they're very significant lenders. Canada, for example, uh, you know, credit unions in Canada are, you know, competes fair and square with high street banks. They, they are, but they tend to be the ones that will give access to remote commun rural communities. They won't close their branch. They will be the ones that make sure that uh, ones with uh, more difficult credit records who wouldn't get crowd, who would not get peer-to-peer -peer, uh, loans and they would not get uh, loans from RBS can get loans because there's a different way of assessing their creditworthiness that's based on social relationships. So a big part to play for credit unions. I regret the fact that the UK is so far behind many other uh, countries in this, but, but I celebrate the fact that there's a lot of activity and energy around boosting the credit union sector here. And, and, and partly, in, in fact, due to the partnership with the church, which is, which is great. Can I also say the credit unions are planning to adopt the technology for the crowdfunding market, which means that they can take their um, expertise in lending and their existing networks and base, get a little bit more efficient, scale up with the technology, and I think be quite influential. Mm. Whilst you've got the floor, do you want to pick up some of the, uh, the technology questions? Yes, because I'm a girl, I can talk about agile development. I love it. Um, <laughs> so the reality is that if you do any form of peer-to-peer -peer lending or crowdfunding in the UK now, where there's any intention to give back the money, it's repayable finance, equity, loan, that is regulated by the FCA. So we are now all regulated as an industry. But what we've managed to negotiate is a slightly lighter touch regulation, which we think is more proportionate to the level of risk involved. And I see yeah. that as a fundamental competitive advantage. And I, it is very different to my existence in BritishAirways.com, where we would kind of build it in something called rapid application development, showing my age, but it's kind of pre-agile. And, and you could build it and test it very quickly and learn as you went. The challenge with regulation and where it gets in the way of innovation is if you want to launch a new financial services business, you have to build the technology. You have to have the uh, bank account in place before you can put your application in to get regulated. So I feel the regulation is fairly proportionate. It's still a barrier to entry for innovators coming through. Um, but I think that there is increasing progress being made where they will now accept wireframes and earlier stage elements of user journey. We still back into the banks. It's the weirdest form of competition because I can't beat my competitors. But what I can do is provide a different level of transparency, a fairer share of return, a more engaging proposition, and help them build the confidence to make decisions for themselves about what they do with their money. Um, Patricia, do you want to pick up the one about yeah. um, payments and Apple Pay and that world? Yeah, so I don't think any of the challenger banks are going to have a different payments model. They'll lock into uh, faster payments and chaps as per all the other banks. I, th I think the issue is that they need to be as well regulated, actually, as the current large banks. You've got to have, I think, safe banking. But the advantage they have is they're not burdened with a large cost base. The cost-income ratio of the um, existing banks is between sort of 50% and 80%. So they don't come in with branches. They don't come in with, well, Atom won't have branches. They, they don't come in with all the legacy systems and so on. But you've got to have a lot of protections around any bank, and you've got to have uh, good regulation, I think. Um, I think 
the issue is more how do they appeal to different customers. And when I look at my daughters, their use of technology um, is just in a different league to mine. And so something that appeals to that different approach to IT, I, I think, is certainly something that it's worth pursuing. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask the two bankers at their definition of money. So, George, you go first, and then I'll ask James. Uh, then we'll I, go back. I think it's the way we measure, store, and transfer value. And all banks do is enable that. <laughs> James first, then Julia. <laughs> then I do want to come back, because I don't want to... Um, can, I, can I answer it and thread all the answers together. Can I, Depends how long so, you take. Wow. No, I will. I'll do, okay. I'll do it quickly. So for me, for me, money is, it's a social contract between people. It's two sides of a promise. And it's got a material and a non-material side. Um, and, and in a sense, at its very core, one of some of the sort of fundamental problems has been breaking that sense of relationship and social contract and making it only stores of value and material and commodified and, and sort of trying to make it physical. And that means that actually taking the people out of the system is where the genesis of all these things come from. So, so actually our challenge in terms, of, in terms of the technology approach, technology can make things easier, but it's about being able to make things easier for people, not replacing the people within the system. If it does that, it fundamentally takes it over. Um, I mean, in a way, New, new entrants may come in without branches, come in without sort of other costs. If they come in without people and the potential for people to connect in different ways, we miss the point. Credit unions and other local banks or any relationship banks, the sort of the, the old-fashioned branch banking, where it is all fundamentally about relationships with people, they are doing something qualitatively diff different to the needs of businesses who don't just always need just the money at the lowest price. They sometimes just need someone they trust who can talk through problems. Biggest problems for SMEs actually is not access to finance. It's actually access to figuring out how they can kind of steer their businesses in a difficult economy, how they can find customers, how they can network and do things in different ways. And that requires partners, and that is part of a relationship. And that's all part of what I see as being a sort of a healthy system. Two sentences, Sorry. Patricia. Two sentences, yeah. just a reaction to yeah. that. The bank that currently has the highest customer satisfaction rating is First Direct. I want to go back to the audience and I'll come back. You, you can save it. Sort of store it up. Four, yeah. I've got five words. Go on. Money is the means to an end. Now I feel sorry for Tony. Go on, quickly. I, I was going to say, you can't deny me answering yeah, yeah, that yeah, question. No, I, I, know, I, know, I know. a book called Where Does Money Come From? My answer would be that money is a social technology, but the answer is to be found on here. It isn't this bit of paper. It's what's written on it. I promise to pay the bearer on demand. Actually, I'll just stop at the word I promise. It is a, it's a trust. It's a relationship. It's a social relationship. But the key, just about facilitating, we haven't mentioned yet the fact that um, it is the banking sector, it is deposit-taking banks that create the money supply. They create the supply of money mm -hmm. because it is, it is their promises in the form of bank deposits that is the money that we all have to use. And you know, that is an issue we haven't touched on yet, and maybe there'll be some following questions on that, because peer-to-peer -peer lending does not create new money. Bank lending does create new money. If we suddenly wiped out 
banks with peer-to-peer -peer lending, we would have a major systemic problem. And this is something which I don't see anybody in the Treasury or regulatory authorities or indeed crowdfunding associations or the British Banks Association addressing. Maybe we can address it tonight. Is it an imminent threat, do you think? We're going to wipe them out tonight. Well, we, don't, we, don't, we need to have a money supply I want to bring some more... Time for the uh, audience to ask some more questions. So, more questions, please. Again, if you're not the usual type to ask a question, particularly interested in hearing from you. Um, so, we have a question here. Uh, Jen's over there. Have you got someone, Jen? Are you? Yes, we've got someone towards the back, and we've got a question here as well. Okay, so first question, please. I was interested in Patricia's comments about local and stakeholder banks not being very effective because my understanding is that uh, they lend much more to SMEs proportionate to their size and also that during financial crises they're much better at advancing credit to areas of the economy that need it, whereas large banks end up withdrawing credit. So I was wondering if the panel, uh, in particular Tony and Patricia, could perhaps comment on that. Okay, thank you. Jen? Um, I had a question about culture, and it kind of picks up a lot about what James said in his opening remarks about uh, banking should be about relationships and about people. Um, and also, I thought it was interesting that, Tony, you said that you went into banking initially because you wanted to make a social impact. And I don't know how much banking's changed since the time when you entered the industry, but I think that's very much the exception rather than the rule now. People go into banking because they want to make money, they want to make their fortune, rather than make a social impact. How do we get back to giving this perception to young people that you can make a social impact by going into banking, going into finance? Because I think if you do, ultimately you're going to make that change to the culture within the industry. Okay, thank you. And we have a question just here at the front, Jen. This young lady here, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hi, yeah, it's a question for George. Um, you mentioned that you think the ring fence will make banks more homogenous. Uh, I just wondered how. Um, I thought they were quite homogenous now. Um, if, assuming from that that you think uh, the sector should be more diverse, um, I wondered again how, how, how you think that should happen. Okay, so we have three questions for you. One is around stakeholder and state-owned banks and different perspectives on those. One is around culture and motivations of people going into banking. And then we have a question around actually um, the homogeneity of banking and making banking more diverse. And they were largely directed to people. So um, Tony and Patricia, perhaps you want to pick up the local banking one. So Patricia first and Tony. Yes, my, my concern really was over state-owned banks, and the Bank of England did some research actually looking at the likelihood of failure of different types of institutions using a huge global data set, and state ownership was right up there as a cause of failure. And I think my experience of dealing with state-owned banks has really underlined that as well, and I think it's, it's issues around the quality of management, but also issues around political direction of, uh, of lending. My concerns with, with local banks are much more about having a bank tied into a local economy. So if you had a, a credit union or a, or a bank that was based around a single town, take Dewsbury or some, somewhere like that up north, and then the, the co-pit closes, then the bank fails. And I think this, this linking of... Um, 
um, banks to a small local economy that could suffer, I, th I think is an issue, actually. But Tony, I'm sure you may not agree with all of that. <laughs> um, Patricia, I should really must give you a copy of one of our research reports. Um, so, yes, state ownership, we need to unpack that question. There is no doubt, I'm sure, that there are many state-owned banks that have terrible governance and political interference. Those clearly wouldn't be the ones we'd want to copy. But there are also, we've had examples of private shareholder banks that had terrible governance and blew up the financial system. We do not conclude from that that private shareholder banks are dangerous and should, should be avoided, do we? So uh, the question is, which state-owned banks? And actually, my, uh, our proposal for RBS is not necessarily state-owned, but run for the, in public benefit. The trustee savings banks, for example, once had a public purpose and run by trustees. But I think to pick up on the evidence that was suggested by the question, um, if you look at the German Sparkassen, that is the local savings banks, not the regional uh, Landesbanken mm -hmm. that got into trouble, the local savings banks, of which there are about 420, you will find that they required not one single euro of bailout money from the, from the German government. You will find that they did indeed increase credit provision each year throughout the financial crisis. You will find that they lend disproportionately to SMEs. You will find that they give loans on longer terms. You will find that they have uh, better opening hours, more customer service. You will find all of these things. You will find that they are um, the management who are most accountable because if you run your local Sparkassen really badly, you will actually get sacked for it, shock horror, <laughs> whereas I didn't see many bankers who, who dragged RBS into trouble and other banks getting sacked for that. So so the final point on are local banks dangerous? Yes, if it is a single local bank, it might be. But the lesson of all of these stakeholder banks is they work in a network. The Sparkassen are combined together in a mutual guarantee of liquidity and capital support. So if one of them gets out of trouble, then the rest of the network, the peer network, um, will, will bail it out. It's a tried and tested system. And uh, it is the answer to what I think, uh, you know, <laughs> This sort of blanket assumption that local banks are dangerous, state-owned banks uh, suffer political inference, is, is, is not in accordance with the evidence. I can, I can see this is a conversation which may, which may carry on afterwards, and that's fine. Uh, let's move on to culture. So I think there, again, it's probably a question for the two explicit bankers in the room. So James, do you want to start? Um, yeah, I mean, I think culture is governed by experience, and I think, I mean, in I'm, so I so I'm happy to say I'm I'm a banker, and a lot of people who work with me in Triodos Bank feel really happy to be a banker. They really love what they do um, because they spend most of their time genuinely feeling like they're doing something positive in the world. Um, in other banking models, I mean, Sparkassen, again, if you live in the community, and I mean, our communities are more community of interest because we have specific social and environmental sectors which we kind of reach out to, and you, you develop sort of an understanding of being within that community. But in, in Lima, in Peru, uh, I spent time with an, a microfinance institution where the, the, the daily life of the banker was to get up quite early in the morning, do a little bit of uh, uh, sort of office admin first thing, and then by about 8.30 in the morning, they just are out for the entire day in their little area meeting the people. They live in that sort of zone, so they are seeing 
every single day the economic developments, the, the, the challenges, the successes, the opportunities, the new people who are looking for things, they can respond very quickly and effectively because they know everybody. When somebody comes for a loan, they've grown up with that, people, that person and their family. And that is a model which allows for a different quality of risk assessment. It is not a commodified risk assessment. It also allows for an opportunity of adding value in the conversation, in the dialogue between a banker and a client, which can genuinely help the overall needs of the, of, of the community. And when you have those experiences, you don't need bonuses because that's your incentive, because you're doing something of meaning and you're doing something which you're, you're proud of. George, I, mean, I think, I think the, the original question was around what's, what's the motivation behind people going into the banking sector now, I guess? Well, a lot of the people we've got joining us at the moment um, are joining because they see an incredible challenge to turn around a bank that clearly did fail and clearly has a long way to come. Uh, but people that we have persuaded that we are trying to make changes that they think they can believe in. Um, and I see a lot of the, the young people coming into our sort of graduate recruitment programs and things who think this is a good opportunity to make a difference. Okay, whilst, whilst you've got the floor, do you want to pick up the, um, the ring fence? Question? Ring fencing, yeah. Um, so essentially, the, uh, we will end up uh, in 2019 with six or seven ring fenced banks. Uh, they will all be above a certain size because the ring fencing law only applies if you have more than 25 billion of eligible deposits. Uh, they will only be allowed to uh, lend to certain kinds of customers. Uh, they will only be allowed to do these prescribed derivatives, but not those. Uh, they will only be allowed to hedge their interest rate, liquidity, credit risks in this manner and not in that manner. This is what the Act says and what the secondary legislation says. So it's all laid out. So they will all be the same for that. And then on top of that, they will all be in one country. Um, you know, diversity is, is not just... Um, a value that you aim for. It's also one of the basic premises of risk management. Uh, uncorrelated risks make up a diversified portfolio and they sometimes balance themselves out. And then sometimes when the uh, uh, crisis becomes particularly extreme, all the correlations move to one. Uh, and so all your risks that you thought you had put in separate baskets turn out to be in quite similar baskets. And I think some of this ties to the, the local banks question. Um, I cut my teeth in banking uh, writing about the savings and loan crisis in the United States. And if any of you went around those broken homes and boarded up apartments in Texas and Arkansas and saw the devastation there, then you will know that it is just as possible to have a crisis with lots of small banks as with a few large ones. Uh, that's, that's a memory that has stuck with me. So diversity, absolutely, but please let's have real diversity. Very quickly, Julia, and then I want to go back. Which I'm just interested in the, the, this debate about who wants to work in a bank. Um, and I think it's difficult when the, you know, we used to recruit engineers in a wind turbine design company and I grew one from an intern to a lovely junior manager who then got offered 
120k and went to work in a bank. And, and it, it, you know, when there's so much money involved, I think there's a bleed of talent. And my concern is just the alignment. I just, I want to feel that the people who are looking after my money are aligned with me and what I'm trying to achieve from it. And I'm 45, and I own my own home, and I'm doing okay. Um, the millennials, many of whom don't yet own their own home, um, want to work for a company that has a purpose. They want to buy products from a company that has a bit of a purpose, and they ultimately want to invest in that. And I think that the, the big shift we're going to see is that these guys who've never had an advisor and who don't have their own property will put their money where their mouth is just as they put their time where their mouth is. And I think that's a fundamental shift for the good. How many questions do we have time I for? think we probably have one more round. One more round of yeah. questions. Okay, three more questions. So I'm going to pick two, and then I have a special category for the third question. So I've ignored the, the group at the back there. So I can see one hand right at the very back there. Um, and then uh, this gentleman just here towards the front. Now, if you haven't had a chance to ask your question, I'm sorry, but we do have an opportunity afterwards to talk. For the final question, um, I would like to ask, is there anyone who has never asked a question at one of these things and would like to ask a question? Here, you, sir. Okay, you're going to ask your first question tonight. Is that not true? We're in a church. Is there anybody... Is there anybody who has not asked a question at one of these sorts of events before and would like to ask a question now? <laughs> okay, I can see a hand over there. There's a, there's a hand over there, if we can. Okay, so the first question, I think, came from the back over there. Have you got a microphone, sir? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, my name is Paul. Um, my question is this. Um, we hear a lot about legacy systems in banks, but what about leg legacy relationships? Are we... Why haven't more people moved? Are we just in a situation like, like we were in May when everybody said they hated the Tory government and then we woke up a day later and we had a Tory government? So what is it going to take to, to unstick this legacy relationship that people have with banks that they say that they hate? Thank you. Okay. And question up here. The discussion sort of ended uh, with a sort of polarity between big systems and little community banks, etc. It just seemed a little bit of a competition between the two. Is it possible to kind of envisage a map in which all these kinds of institutions work together? Uh, I worked with the credit union movement in Australia at the time when it went through the similar changes that have gone on here. They were small credit unions, but they did on their own create a national support system, which meant that when all the other non-bank financial institutions eventually wound up being bought out by banks, the credit union system still continued. But I also remember when my local bank manager was suddenly removed from any decision-making about flexible support of people. It all went up to some boys in a room somewhere that had dictated how and everything became paper-based and internet structured, etc. So the banks were emasculating their community base, um, but there were other community organisations uh, stepping in. But I just wondered if we could have a map, uh, you know, an ideal picture of both kinds of institutions and how they would support each other. Thank you. And finally, our first-time question asker. Great. 
Well, really, it's a question about finance, not so much about banks, but especially about the trade and transatlantic investment partnership. Ashley Dickinson of the Christian People's Alliance Party ran in as a parliamentary candidate. We believe that large-scale organisations such as multinationals, trade unions, trading blocs, they may exercise great power but have to be called into account of their view if they work against the common good. I wonder what our panel's view was of the TTIP or Trade and Transatlantic Investment Partnership, bearing in mind that, for example, I'm given to understand our NHS is under threat from multinationals who are investing in it, so as really, and the NHS itself is already becoming hard-pressed. Hard and one example that has already happened is, for example, the Egyptian government has been taken to court over its decision to raise the minimum wage when a company that was investing in Egyptian labour tried to demand, demand higher interest payments. So basically my question is about the TTIP, or Trade and Transatlantic Investment Partnership. I wonder what the panel's views were on that. Thank you. I'm sorry okay. I've been a bit long-winded. Thank you. Okay, so we have three questions for you. Sticky relationships, how do we move them? Um, TTIP, what are your views on TTIP? And I have completely forgotten the second question. The second There's question is on mapping, mapping, mapping big ah, and small mapping the system, together. Yeah, so can we have a system that actually joins up between the, the smaller local players and the big players? And the, the first one was on legacy relationships and why is nobody switching? So um, instead of picking people, I'm, um, yes, I know Julia wants to answer that one. It's okay. No, but but the, it's just a I'm myth. Gonna... Don't fall for that crap. <laughs> they, t they totally are moving. What's happening is people are opening incremental bank accounts outside the big five. But the real, I mean, Funding Circle has hit half a billion. I know that's teeny tiny in the world of finance. But what I'm trying to describe is that we have dissatisfaction with and lack of trust in the incumbents. We have interest rates temporarily very low, which creates a bit of a yield chase, which can be a very dangerous bad thing, but it's creating more motive to get off your backsides and move it. There are real alternatives in place. You're told by the government you can put your ISA into this stuff. I genuinely think that we are on the cusp of doing it, and it just suits everyone to kind of go that nobody's moving. Bollocks. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to ask also each panelist what I was going to do is yeah. start at one end and go to the other and see if you had a final word but is that your final word? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tony. So pick, pick a question Tony pick a question or two and any, any final thing you want to say oh, is this the wrap up? Up? Oh, Final this word for the, the whole night? Yes. <laughs> and mine was bollocks. You can, you, can, you can retract that answer if you like. Typical. Typical. Do, do you have a final word on the whole debate that you want to put in? I just would like to say that I don't think that competition is a dirty word. Um, I don't think risk is a dirty word. There's no such thing as investment without risk. To this learned gentleman's point, I think he should possibly come and lend his experience to some of the new players in the sector, because the reality is that for this to make a fundamental change for society, we have to combine the innovation with the scale. And there's no point in being tiny and very innovative. And it's very difficult for those with the scale and the trust and, and the infrastructure in place to be innovative. And if we can find a way that the two can come together, I think ultimately that's what success looks like. But let's just not do it too soon. Tony. 
Uh, yes, I like that question about leg leverage. Well, I'm not going to do that's been done. So um, big systems and little systems and the, and the map, I think that's a very interesting question. And I, I, part of what I was trying to point to was this system that you mentioned with credit unions. But it, when we did our research, we find this repeated, this pattern again and again and again in almost every country apart from here, where small locally governed and autonomously uh, managed institutions can have the ability to respond and gather the information, have the relationships at a local level. But they gain the stability. Patricia rightly points out the dangers of, of, of standalone banks. But they can gain the stability and the economies of scale and the expertise by, by joining together and collaborating in a network. Now, this is a sort of different organizational form. In this country, it appears that we've been obsessed by scale. Everything's got to be big. Everything's got to be merged together and become a, into a giant thing. Right? This is 20th century thinking. In the 21st century, we'll see organizations that are much more dispersed in their control and management. And if all, large organizations don't adopt that, I think they will find themselves increasingly irrelevant. Um, as for TTIP, I find it totally frightening. And I mean, we need to hold another evening. Actually, that's an idea for your next event, may I suggest. <laughs> uh, but I quite agree with you. We share your concerns about TTIP. Final world. I, I don't want to overdo the question that said, I went into banking to achieve social impact. I don't want to, I don't want to overdo that uh, claim. Right? I, was just, I was just merely saying that I was very comfortable <laughs> that I wasn't sort of doing any active harm to the economy. <laughs> but, but I left in 2000 at the, to, at the, at the height of the dot-com boom because just in the space of those four years, it seemed that I'd gone from an industry that actually uh, it was based on relationships, it was all about the client first, it was all about your reputation and integrity, to one in which that was then Credit Suisse first Boston. It was all about a fast buck, it was all about the deal, it was all about the ego, it was all about how much money you could make this year, um, and I had to leave. I don't know, I mean, that happened in the space of four years in the bank that I worked in, but I, I don't know how long a road it will be to come back <laughs> from that disastrous erosion of culture. Um, but I mean, this is why I defer to, to what George was telling us about that journey for, for the banks that are trying to deal with it. But, um, it, it. And I'm pleased to hear that people are joining because they feel it's a challenge. So may, maybe we can get back to that sense of it being about integrity, about relationships, and about social purpose. And just one thing mentioned, got it, it, savings and loans crisis, this has cropped up once or twice. We, we have a, I think we have a problem with, with, with banking uh, in this country that needs to be fixed, but we have a far bigger problem with housing. And these two things are, are, are inherently related. Um, but don't mistake sort of the problems with banking for... I mean, they are related, but we have a massive problem with housing that we have to, to address. So, yes, the muskiest part of, of the banking industry is the mortgage market, but that's... That means we need, to, we need to address our housing problems, I would suggest, uh, rather than that being a banking problem per se. So, I mean, uh, that, that's the, the event after the TTIP one is on housing. <laughs> Thanks very much. George. Um, why haven't people moved from the banks that they hate? Um, well, the first answer is that they have, as Julia says. Uh, the process that she's described has been going on for 30 years or so. Uh, Back when I was a customer of the Woolwich, I was a customer of the Woolwich for savings accounts in the expectation that I might one day be graciously given a mortgage by them because you went in and you saw the manager and uh, asked him what your chances were of a mortgage and he sucked his teeth and said, if you save with us for five years, we might consider you. 
And that was one side of the banking uh, divide, and the other side was the clearing banks, and that was where you had your checkbook and your current account uh, and unsecured personal loans, but you didn't have mortgages in those days and you didn't really have savings accounts either. Um, now, credit cards came along and um, the credit cards initially were only with the clearing bank that you had your current account with, and then that all changed. The savings accounts migrated. You can have a savings account anywhere. You can open it in lots of different places and you can transfer money back and forth. Uh, lots of these bits have migrated away from where they used to be. Uh, you could call it cherry-picking uh, in, if you like. That's one way of looking at it. Uh, but it's a process that's been going on for a long time and it continues to go, go on and um, you know, there's lots of very, very strong competitive pressure on us that means that we're losing lots of customers for lots of bits of their business. And quite often they leave the basic current account with us and we don't make much money on that uh, because they haven't left any money in it. <laughs> uh, and the second reason, and um, please suppress your laughs for a moment, uh, is that actually they don't necessarily hate their banks all that much. Uh, they hate banks, they hate banking, but they don't necessarily hate their banks. Uh, the Competition and Markets Authority in its recent issues, updated issue statement on the current account market and the SME banking market uh, admitted through clenched teeth that its own uh, customer research had shown that 91% of current account customers were uh, fairly or very fairly or exceedingly satisfied with their banks. 91% isn't bad. You're not going to get 100 in most cases for a whole industry. Um, so, actually, the dissatisfaction with the banking service is not as bad as you might um, have read in the newspapers. Uh, a different perspective on that. Uh, we obviously track our own brands quite carefully on this. We, we monitor a, a measure called net promoter score, and you ask people to grade on a scale of 1 to 10 um, how likely they would be to recommend you to a friend or um, uh, relation. And the top two buckets uh, are classified as promoters, and the bottom six are classified as detractors. So it's quite a stiff barrier. It's, it's skewed in the measure. Um, the gap between the scores of uh, NatWest and RBS, both of which are in the same groups, both of which have the same products, both of which have the same IT systems, uh, essentially the same people, uh, is uh, 25 points. That is not accounted for by customer service or customer satisfaction. It's accounted for by reputation and the broader image of, uh, of the banking sector and RBS specifically in that sector. So, so there's actually quite a lot of latent customer goodwill in there because there are some good things that we do for them and we do them quite reliably most of the time. And I say that with a bit of caution after our IT breakdown a couple of years ago. Uh, but a lot of the time uh, we provide a very good service that people don't have to worry about. And really the best result for us is if our customers don't ever have to think about us because nothing ever goes wrong. Uh, and then when they have a particular need, then they can come to us for, for um, help in that need. But it's their need, and I, I still think that we're just the enablers for that need. Uh, 
I, just, I, I want to keep us moving, so because <laughs> we're now standing between this audience and their glass of wine. So, is, uh, did you have anything, any more? Well, I mean, thoughts? just one last reflection. I mean, customer is is the word that is used at the beginning and end of every meeting at RBS now. Um, it wasn't used enough before. Uh, and we've, we've gone back and found in Andrew Drummond's uh, notes to his staff in 1783, uh, I think it was, uh, that above all else, remember this, that the customer's interests must always come first. Okay. Patricia. Yes, I think this issue of legacy relationships is, is really interesting. It always used to be said, and I think it was proved, that you were more likely to change your husband or wife than you were to change your current account provider. That, that's now really starting to change because it's become much easier to move your, your um, standing orders and all the rest of it. And you, we are starting to see uh, new institutions or newer institutions attracting the primary current accounts. And I, I think that's really important. I think designing um, products that people really want. And I think the issue with trust with the banking sector is, is, is not over the transactions balances and the current accounts. It, it's over what happens to people when they go into the branches. And I, 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 um, when my younger daughter went to university, I said to her, whatever you do, don't go into the bank branch. <laughs> if you've got a problem, come to me. And my worry was that she would be <laughs> sold some product or given some too large limit on her credit card. And I I said this to a senior banker and he said, I told my younger daughter exactly the same thing. <laughs> James, um, the, the Inuits have got 20 different words for snow and that comes from the fact that they've got 20 different experiences of it. Um, when we did research into what people's experiences were with with banks and w their own their own banks and about sort of what would they like from a relationship with banks, one of one of the most frequent responses was, "I can't imagine what I'd have a relationship with a banker about exactly," <laughs> and and I think that. I think that there is something where we do calibrate our satisfaction. Our expectations have been set. As long as, as, long as banks, you can get cash out of the wall and, and checks cleared, that's okay. As long as you go to the barber, they cut your hair, they don't cut your head off, you know, things are okay. Um, in order to have a disruptive innovation, there would be a different there would be a different experience. One of the most powerful things in the crowdfunding space is that it is giving far more people a new experience. It is a learning. The performance of crowdfunding shouldn't be measured just in terms of the volumes going through it, but by the fact that an entire generation is growing up with new learning tools, new qualities of experience, and are more enabled to be able to, be, to have a different set of expectations which could be fulfilled. The last point I would say is that there is a huge polarity, and this is not yet a collaborative space. And I will admit that we find it hard to, to genuinely collaborate with, with other banks in the sector. We have a lot of banks across the world who are similar to us and we're doing a lot of things, raising capital together, strengthening. But in terms of genuinely reaching out to different parts of the financial sector, 
it's not a collaborative space and it really needs to be. There needs to be a lot of healing, there needs to be a lot less demonizing, a lot less, a lot, lot more constructive exploration, which is genuinely inclusive and having conversations which don't just include different financial sector players, but a broad spectrum of, of, of everybody, things like this. Thank you. So before we started with the audience, so first of all, I want to thank all the speakers for their contributions, and perhaps we could just give them a round of applause now. But we started with the audience and we'll finish with the audience. So, Anna. Yeah, so um, as, as we started, so we finished. We didn't want the last word to come from one of the experts sat up here. We wanted it to come from one of the experts sat down here. So we wanted the last word to come from a member of the audience. So if I could ask my colleague Pauline to just come up and share with us very briefly a couple of thoughts on the evening. Pauline? Thank you very much. So Pauline is, is one of my colleagues at the Finance Innovation Lab, and like you, she has been listening all evening um, and just wants to share a few thoughts on what she's heard this evening. Just come here. <laughs> yes, you have to stand at the front. That. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to sit gently in my seat and speak from there. So... Actually, I'm, where I'm going to begin is where James finished, around polarity and the need for collaboration. And I hope the speakers will excuse me if I paraphrase them just a little bit. Because the title of tonight is Unfinished Business. And um, George started out by saying that, in fact, it's a different system to the pre-crash time. Tony said... We haven't even started, never mind, unfinished business. Barbara said to us that values change isn't enough. And Julia talked about the need for trust and transparency. And George said that shifting culture isn't easy. And despite the fact that We've heard lots of different views. There were themes that came through that were actually very connected, which I'll mention. But one, the one word that I didn't hear was that it's complex. And it is complex. It's actually not easy to change a system such as the financial system. And... The, one, the themes that came through were the fact that we need more diversity. We need real alternatives. Business model change came up quite a few times uh, from different speakers on what you could say different sides of the, the argument. But what really resonated with me was a comment from James when he said that it all pivots on purpose. What's the purpose of our financial system? What's it there for? And the definitions of money were really, really interesting. And again, I'm going to reference something that James said, which is that it's social technology. But at the same time, 
we can't ignore what George said about the fact that customers say and demonstrate that they are satisfied with their individual banks. It's complex. We are complex human beings. So I think the question from tonight in unfinished business is personally for each of us, what's the financial system that we want? What is the relationship that we want with our bank, with our money? It isn't just a transaction. It is emotional, it is relational. So what choices do we make and what decisions do we make as individuals that deliver the system that we want to have? So if there's unfinished business, it's within our remit to do something about that from whichever side of the fence we're sitting on. So that's my summary of tonight and I'm going to hand back to Anna. Thank you, Pauline, and hopefully that will, that will uh, be a good in invitation, if you like, for you all to carry on the conversation. Um, we do have some refreshments, um, if you sort of just follow, follow the corridor back out to where, the, um, where Nelson is, actually, is, is where, the, where the drinks are going to be. Um, so first, I, mean, I thought I'd thank the speakers. I want to thank you all for, for very useful points, questions, interjections th throughout the evening. That's been very helpful. I thank St. Paul's Institute and St. Paul's, the beautiful venue that, uh, that we've been able to host this event in. As I said, there were there some, some drinks outside. There's also a number of different other groups that we work with in civil society. So Finance Watch, Share Action, Positive Money, Move Your Money. Um, and I think I probably missed one out and they'll be, they'll be telling me off. New Economics Foundation is the last one. So there's, there's more information about all of their different work around the finance system out there if you want to sort of uh, find out more about the detail of it. Uh, and also just to reiterate Barbara's point at the end, um, this is a free, free event, and um, we want to keep them as free events, both in the, in the lab and, and St. Paul's Institute. Um, but obviously there's a cost to hosting an event in, in, in a venue such as this, so if you are able to make a contribution um, in the collection plate on your way out, that would be extremely grateful. So thank you for coming.